Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I am your host for today's program. I also touch my face at least 35 times a day. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, and Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So we're talking about um, a subject that um, I- I'm a big fan of, and I'm a big fan of it because... I think it's extremely important and nobody talks about it. And that is uh, whether uh, you should buy a business. And I say nobody talks about it because I'm, I'm in the transactional world and, you know, I do my, my, my fair share of, of M&A, uh, thankfully. And uh, one thing that I've noticed is that there are plenty of seminars around that will talk about how you should sell your business and, and why. And there's some that will even talk to you about succession planning. How do you transition it, your business to a succeeding generation? And, and I think those two subjects get covered a lot, quite frankly, because I think that's where the most money is made. There's a lot of money to be made. Certainly anytime a business sells or brokerage fees or legal fees or accounting fees, there are, um, I don't know, after deal dinner fees. I mean, there's a lot of money on the move <clears throat> that, that, um, uh, that occurs and is set in motion because a business is going to be sold. And that's usually initiated by, uh, the seller, not always, but usually. Um, and to a lesser extent, that is true for businesses that are in succession. There's a whole industry now around succession planning, There are organizations that offer some form of accreditation or some source of letters after your name because you're a really awesome succession planner. Um, But but buying a business, it's it's really crickets. And and even to the point where it's actually hard to find an investment bank that wants to take on what we call a buy-side transaction, right? They don't want to work for buyers because the perception is that buyers have less of a motivation to to buy a business than a seller – has to sell a business. And therefore, if you're working on contingency, it's a less reliable source of, of income. Um, uh, but buying a business, I would argue, is just as hard, if not harder, than selling a business because the burden of, of information is that that is on the buyer and is going to be in the asset that you buy, right? So Warren Buffett is famous for saying that you know price is what you pay, value is what you get. And if you do things right, you hope that value is at least equal to or maybe greater than the price. But but the you know the seller the seller walks away with money and they know what money is worth, right? But the buyer they may not understand exactly what they've bought for a year or two or more after they've bought the business. And so 
you know, this is a rich topic for discussion. This can be one of these things. I, I, I may ask our guests to come back for a second part because I can just see right now that, that we're going to cover a lot of ground and leave ground uh, uncovered. So with that, uh, with that having been said, I would like to introduce you to my friend Ray Padron, who is Chief Executive Officer of Brightworth, a boutique private wealth management firm headquartered in Atlanta. Um, founded in 1997, they empower their clients to focus on what matters most. They do that by helping their clients build, preserve, and make an impact on their wealth. Today, Brightworth has over 1,400 individuals and families across the U.S. That, whom they help build, preserve, and be generous with their wealth, which is currently, according to their website, about $4 billion under management, letting them spend more time on the things that truly matter to them. From the beginning, Brightworth built their firm to align their interests with those of their clients so that they're always on the same side of the table with those they serve. A critical way in which they accomplish this is by being fee-only, selling no proprietary products and refusing to let compensation influence the guidance Brightworth provides to its clients. That's important. Fee-based advisors are hard to find, and fee-based advisors who are good are very hard to find. That is not a usual model, so pay attention to that. They're a team of over 50 professionals in Atlanta and Charlotte who are dedicated to providing independent and objective advice, taking care of their clients in the same manner they would want their own parents taken care of. By providing outstanding depth of expertise, the uniquely personal approach, they continue to create lasting relationships with clients to help build their financial future with confidence. Ray Padron, thank you for coming on the program. Mike, it is a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you and I are getting to spend time together. So... Um, you're now CEO and Grand Poobah of Brightworth. Um, how long, I know you're a co-founder, but have you always been the CEO? Uh, no, actually, um, I took over the CEO position in 2014. And in that time, how many acquisitions have you led Bright, Brightworth either through or maybe better yet into? Sure. The, we actually have done three and it was, uh, uh, very fortuitous. We had a chance to do a very small transaction first, which helped us, sort of learn the ropes of integrating an, uh, an individual practice into our firm. Uh, then uh, the next transaction, which was probably within 12, 18 months of that, we, uh, it was sort of a, um, a, a team that was rolling out of another firm they wanted to leave, and we brought them into um, our firm. Uh, a little more complicated. There was a lot more client work to do, paperwork, more conversations with the, uh, the exiting uh, that was taking place, et cetera. And then there was a, a very large transaction we did, which doubled the size of the firm in 2017. So I, I'd like to talk about that one because it was clearly so material and so important. Um, why did you want to make that big an acquisition? Were you nervous about making that big an acquisition? All right. Two questions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we were nervous. Um, but the, the big reason for doing the acquisition was we, we decided we needed to actually have a, um, a non-organic growth strategy. Uh, we're in an industry, the wealth management industry is not actually that old, particularly the fee only, uh, practice. So when you look at what's happening in our industry, there is issues around succession planning. We have a literally hundreds, if not thousands of firms that are struggling with their own succession plans. All the first generation owners who've created this business now are in what we would call a succession trap. They can't sell their practice or their businesses to the next generation. It's too late. It's worth too much. And what's happening is there's this huge amount of consolidation that's actually taking place because they have to do something. 
At the same time, we've got private equity firms that are and, and large banks like um, Goldman Sachs that are buying up RIAs because they're seeing changes in their own industry. So there's a lot taking place because the industry's matured to the place it is. So our choices are stick with organic growth or to do things that put us in a better position for the future. The future of this industry will be there will be a handful of national firms. There will also be maybe five to ten regional firms. And our decision six years ago was we want to be a regional firm. Let's work towards that, and then we can go from there. So uh, from a strategic standpoint, we needed to to do something, and we needed to learn our way there. So that's pretty much the motivation for why we wanted to do inorganic growth. So I, I like that distinction. That's an important kind of vocabulary point, organic growth versus inorganic. For our listeners who may not necessarily know that word, organic growth simply means growth that you – that you drive on your own by either expanding revenue from existing clients or adding new clients to your portfolio. Exactly. Right. So, um, I infer something I want to clarify. I want to make sure I'm not, I'm not assuming, but it, it, I infer from what you just said that you had a concern that if you did not do, if you did not acquire to become larger, you were at risk of potentially being acquired and maybe not under the most, the best circumstances that you would like. Sure. That's exactly right. We actually had made the decision to work on our own succession plan 13 years ago. I was only 50 years old at the time. I was the oldest partner. So we started our transition and our strategy for our own internal succession plan well in advance. Uh, We're now at a point where the next generation and we're almost into third generation owners own more the, of the firm than the original founders do. In fact, two of the founders are already gone and, um, the, the other two, myself included, will probably be gone in the next five to seven years. So, um, you know, we've, we've taken care of our part. Um, now the question is, what do we want to become? And with all the consolidation taking place, it really is we wanted to be the masters of our own destiny. We've solved all our own succession plan. We should be able to, you know, survive all the changes that the industry is taking place in the industry. So this big acquisition that you did in 2017 – it's hard to imagine. It's three years ago now. Mm. Um, how long did that take? Uh, longer than I anticipated. Yeah. Um, there was a really interesting process. Um, we uh, actually had met several years before that. Um, they were interested in their own succession plan, wanted to meet with us to understand how we had done ours and approached several, uh, one a private equity firm in particular to help them do that. Um, after I think working with them for 18 months, realized there wasn't enough time. Uh, and they came back to us and said, would you be interested? We really like you, you know, why not consolidate the two firms? And, uh, that was a great opportunity for us. So, um, you said that the acquisition took longer than, than expected. Um, what knock-on effects did that have on other sure. aspects of your business or maybe the acquisition itself? How did that sure. change the tenor? Sure. So, um, and, I, and I didn't really ask, answer the last question well in the sense of why did it take so long, but there were a couple of things that had to take place. Um, you know, you have this whole LOI, which is our first, first time we actually did something as formal as sending out an LOI. Uh, you start doing some due diligence and you realize, you know what, the way we structured the LOI, some of the provisions really did need to change. And uh, one of those was there was a follow-on transaction that we felt was really important. Uh, there were two parts to the transaction. There was the investment 
the registered investment advisor, and then there was a planning firm. And um, there were issues with the planning firm. We realized we needed more than just a, um, what would you call it, an option. We needed an actual you know, drop dead date where we would actually be able to do something. So anyways, that process required us to sort of renegotiate from the LOI a different transaction. And that really is the reason why it stretched out. Um, the cascading consequences of that are both positive in a sense for us and negative. The negatives, as I'm sure everybody can imagine, the longer you take, it's like a death march. Yep. Um, the more time people have to think of things, they want answers that, you know, I'm trying to explain to them. We, we're going to answer those things on the other side of the transaction. Uh, so, you know, where there are blanks in, in people's minds, they fill it with usually negative things. So it's this constant grind of trying to solve things and ghosts, I call it, that they think exist that just aren't there. So those are the negative things. The positive things were the firm actually grew during all that time, the firm we were buying. So our initial um, upfront cost relative to the revenue we were buying ended up becoming much lower. Now, that's interesting. And And that speaks to the fact that on the sell side, they ran their process well. Because the more frequent outcome you see is that the firm stagnates or even declines in the sale process. Because selling a firm, and as I think you discovered, buying a firm becomes a full-time job in and of itself. And so frequently, the very asset you're targeting can be neglected, right? If it's not run well, if it hasn't scaled well, it's not as valuable an asset at the end of the process as it was when you started. But you encountered the reverse phenomenon. Yeah, good point. And that must have given you then a lot of confidence. You were you found the right partner. You were doing the right thing. Yeah, they're, they're a very focused um, business. They're focused on the dental industry. So they were um, able to continue to, you know, um, what's the word, kind of run their flywheel. And they have this great marketing engine, which is one of the things that absolutely attracted us, you know, to the acquisition. Uh, and that uh, marketing engine just kept working. So um, actually, I want to I touch on that because something that – Something you led off with and now we're coming back to, I think, is a very important instructive point, which is you didn't buy a business for the hell of it. You bought a business because you had a specific objective that you wanted to meet with buying one or more businesses. Correct. Right? And presumably then you were prepared and perhaps did walk away from potential targets that were not going to help you meet that objective. Correct. Right. So there's a there's a deliberate process. And I think that's important because, well, actually, actually, I'm going to back up. I'm assuming something that may not be true. Do you on occasion receive unsolicited offers from firms or brokers say, hey, this this thing's available. Would you like to buy it? Absolutely. And most of the time you say? No. Why? Well, there's some very specific things that we're looking for. You know, one is we're not, you know, we love the idea of there being a succession trap because usually that means we can get this at a decent price. Okay. But there has got to be a whole host of things that have to be behind that to make it work, right? you got to have talent. There's got to be a set of hungry next-generation people who have been waiting for something to happen so they can take over this business. I can't just ask somebody from Atlanta to move up to Charlotte to run the firm, right? We need to have a – so we were looking for several things. One is a strategic location. Um, if I get an offer to, you know, to buy a firm in some small town in Alabama, I'm not interested in that. So Charlotte was a strategic location. You're looking for strategic talent, the credible talented group of, of next generation people that were ready to take over the business. Um, and then the, um, 
I'm trying to think of what the third thing was. Oh, a strategic market. So our Atlanta business is very focused on corporate executives and professionals, as well as with business owners. Having a, a business up in Charlotte that's entirely focused on the dental industry nationwide was a real coup and very unusual. You usually don't see that in our industry. And, and you know, we, we had another guest on, Rod Berker, who talked about uh, the need to specialize. I'm, uh, this is not really on our script, but I sort of have to ask you, do, do you feel that specialization has been a benefit? Absolutely. People want to work with people who know their business and, you know, and the phase of life that they're in. Yeah. You know, and I think clients, uh, you know, clients appreciate not having to educate their advisors Absolutely. about their business. And, you know, uh, in, in being, in being a generalist, it's, it's hard to sort of defend <laughs> to a client that says, Hey, should I get somebody that's done one of these before or not? Now nah, you don't need someone that's done one of these before, right? right? right. Somebody, anybody can watch your business, just any old business. Right. Exactly. I've, I've never been able to really figure out how to carry that conversation and not sound dumb <laughs> doing it. If there's a way, please send something into info at decisionvisions.com, wherever the hell our email is and help me figure out how to do that. Really? So, um, so this opportunity came about because you had some kind of a relationship and there was sort of a, a slow burn conversation, let you sort of dip your toe in and I think sort of gradually weighed in. Is that fair? Yeah, that's a fair statement. So at some point you then sl- flip the switch from conversation to real n- negotiation discussion. You touched on this before, but I want to really dive into this. What was your due diligence process like? Well, the um, – so – the due diligence process actually went incredibly well. Uh, there are several reasons. The The individuals we were dealing with, um, some of them actually were attorneys, um, and so they had a, a, a really good understanding of some of the things we were going to be asking for. We also had a private equity firm, our financing arm, if I may, that was helping us do the acquisition, had done literally dozens and dozens of these in this space. So we really knew exactly, you know, sort of what to ask for and how to build out the data room and et cetera. So that process actually went really well and smoothly. Uh, we have a full-time compliance officer who, you know, knows exactly, again, what we need to be doing and looking for. So um, it was a pretty smooth process. It didn't take very long. How long did it take? Do you recall? Um, yeah, it's about 30, 30 to 45 days. Okay. that That's a well-run due diligence yeah. process, yeah. which I'm sure your buyer – I'm sorry, your seller appreciated. Yeah, it was. Because a seller, when I advise sellers, I tell them to be prepared for a 90-day, sometimes even a 120-day due diligence. Pro- and that gets into the death marks thing that you talk about. Exactly. You know, everybody's happy and cheerful for the first two weeks of questions. And then after that, oh, God, you know, i got to do this again, right? Yeah, yeah. You can only imagine what it's like by day 100. You just – you just want to chuck everything and say, you know what? I'm just going to sell this to the government. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. We, uh, and I mentioned it earlier, there were these two parts, the getting the RIA part and the due diligence done. Really, we had that done all in 90 days, including the uh, purchase agreement. It was ne- renegotiating the aspect of the LOI that required the uh, acquisition of the other part. Um, that took us another 12 months. It was, that was where we had the death march. Now, what's, what's interesting in your in the due diligence too, is that in your world, you know, you're a highly regulated industry, right? And, and one in which a potential liability and frankly, disaster is lurking around every corner. Mm -hmm. Right. And as you said, you have a compliance officer, all RAAs either have an internal or outsourced compliance officer. You pretty much have to, I think. Absolutely. Um, 
uh, how, how, how afraid were you concerned? Were you about, you know, finding that, or maybe not finding that gremlin under the rug that all of a sudden now it becomes your responsibility. Um, how big a concern is that in your industry? It's a big concern. Obviously there's two things that, uh, you do that. Well, or maybe it's three things that you're doing that kind of help, you know, mitigate a lot of that. Obviously we did an asset purchase. We weren't buying the stock of the company, right? So there's sort of step one. So that gives you some, some level of protection. Sure. You're, they actually have, you know, cl- you know, uh, compliance files, which they have to have. And if they've been recently audited, they're probably very up to date. So that gives you another layer you know, yep. of comfort. You're going to do an audit of their CRM. You know, a well-run firm's got every client conversation or every issue sitting in CRM. So you're going to do a set of tests through their CRM for particularly their larger clients where mm. there might be larger financial exposure. Um, in this case, the, uh, the firm that we purchased did have one issue with a client. It was, it was you know, disclosed to us right up front. Um, it wasn't a big deal. You know, clients get upset sometimes. Yep. And then the last thing is um, the uh, clients are required to sign a consent on the transaction. So we can't just buy a firm and then the clients go, wait a minute, all of a sudden, who's Brightworth? So there's this whole communication process and the clients actually consent to the transaction. So there's another set of affirmations that there's no problems lurking out there, or if they are, they're going to make a decision not to come. So a client, what, that's interesting. I, I think I kind of knew that, but hadn't really internalized it. Is a client consent such that they consent to be transitioned over or could a client potentially even halt a transaction? Um, they can't halt a transaction, but what they can do is, is, you know, isolate what issues are and effectively then they would not, um, they would not sort of consent to moving over and they right. would no longer be a client. They can opt out basically. Opt out, and then there, you know, it changes the math of the transaction. Now, did, I wonder the, the way you kind of walk, work through this due diligence process and compliance, I guess I wonder if, in a way, it's easier because you can kind of look up with FINRA what kind of actions have been taken, if any censures, any okay. you know anything like that. That's going to be a matter of public record. In exactly, fact. and that's not just at the um, the firm level, but also at each advisor level. Okay, right. If there's an action against a specific advisor that maybe they even hired after that that issue came up, that's all going to be out in the disclosure systems that we we check so that that's a luxury relative to a lot of other industries absolutely that that the the skeletons they can't be in a closet for or it's a very easy closet to open exactly <laughs> um so you, you you you're working through a due diligence process at what point did your conversation talk turn to price and terms most of the price and terms were worked out up front and we're in the loi we okay. structured it that way we have basically saying we're going to purchase your, you know, your revenue at X and we've built out an earnout of, you know, whatever over a five year period. And, um, so most of the pricing was already determined. And how, how difficult was that? Was there a lot of back and forth or did you and the seller find that you had kind of a similar mindset? In this case, it was a very similar mindset. Uh, in other cases where they're not, in other cases where you have you found that a showstopper? No, the other in the other ones it was less of an issue because they were much smaller transactions yeah. and the multiples were just one time. Yeah. Whereas this was an earnout calculation, so it gets a little bit more complicated. Okay. And you know when you have market volatility like we do today, yeah. yesterday, anyways, yeah. Um, you're it becomes a much more complex conversation. So, 
Did, did you do this transaction yourself or did you have a team of advisors helping you with this? Great question. Um, probably one of my, uh, uh, call it both a strength and a fault was this one transaction in particular, I did most of the work from a Brightworth perspective. Now the good news is I had a private equity firm that specializes in this. So they were a big part of helping, you know, uh, keep things on track, make sure our thinking was clear and moving the, the transaction forward. Uh, you said you had a private equity firm in, in, in what way, what, how are they involved? Are they a client that just sort of helped you along the way or a no, professional they're contact? They're actually an investor in the transaction. So it's, a, Oh, I it's, see. Okay. Yeah. They're just partly a, a bright worth private equity uh, purchase of the business. Got it. Okay. Um, so that I didn't know that about the transaction. So did, did that, it sounds like I would think initially my, my first reaction would be, having another seat at the table would make the transaction more complicated, but it sounds like in your case, it also made it easier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did make it more complicated. Uh, you know, quick, funny story. I think there was one day I, my wife and I have a place in Florida condo one day where I was working, negotiating with and against the private equity firm on pricing. I was working, you know, on the transaction itself uh, negotiating compensation. I don't think I got off the phone, uh, over a 10 hour period. And I had walked over five miles just inside my home, uh, working through those kinds of issues. So yeah, it can get very complicated. Um, now a lot of people talk about the importance of culture. I've known you long enough to know you are a big culture guy. I am. You don't, this is not something that's just a, a Harvard business review article that you read. This is something that is critical to you. It's part of who you are, what's made you successful. Thank you. You were, you, you are acquiring a large firm. How did you, how did you explore culture and get comfortable that a, an acquisition of that magnitude wasn't going to blow up what you'd spent the prior 20 years building? Yeah. Great question. And probably the biggest concern that you have with your own team when you're, when you're proposing this to your own management committee and your partners. Um, the, uh, you know, in this case, it was really kind of an interesting process, you know, step one, and I do this as I'm looking at firms that are out there that I would call, you know, targets, they're, they're, um, what I call stealth targets. I'm not using their name nobody else in the firm knows, but I actually go to your, their website and I'll sit there and look at the bios of what I would call the next gen leaders or the, um, or the senior team that we would probably be buying out. And, you know, it was in this case, when I looked at the, their website, it was, wow, I could take that, that bio and that person lift it out. I could set it right into Brightworth and it would, they would, you wouldn't know the difference. They'd look and feel just like a Brightworth advisor. That's not culture, but it is a big step. You see the things that they've done. You see what their hobbies are. You see what's important to them, their certifications, et cetera. And they were definitely felt like Brightworth. Um, the next thing is you, you got to talk about how they make decisions. How do they govern themselves? That'll tell you a lot about the leadership. Is it a top-down kind of thing? Is it consensus building? Um, and then the other part is you actually go in there and you show them, here's how we run our firm. Here's what we expect from ourselves as human beings working in, you know, working together to get things done for our clients. We want to look as healthy on the inside as our, we look to our clients on the outside. And the other thing is you spend time with them. We do, uh, uh, we're encouraged to do assessments if we can get them to do there. Uh, 
Step one is I share them mine. Here's my assessments. I want you to see what my profile looks like. Um, you know, the fact that I'm a take charge person and I tend to be a bit spontaneous, et cetera. Those are the things I want them to know about. So I open the firm up to them and at the same time, hopefully allow them to be and feel more open to us. And we kind of learn our way there. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm glad you say that when, when my firm was acquired by Bradyware two and a half years ago, I volunteered my profiles, um, because I wanted them to know what they were getting into and I wanted them to self-select out. Right. And my profile basically says that I am a raving lunatic that is always pushing the edge of stuff. That is a creative type, right. That doesn't follow rules that doesn't pay attention to administrative detail and doesn't acknowledge that they're even important. Right. And basically says that you're, you're, you're retaining an anarchist. Right. Right. And, and, I thought it was important that they sort of understood what they're getting into, that when I told them that, I wasn't just being self-deprecating. I have empirical data that demonstrates that's the kind of person that I am so that they understood what they were kind of getting into. And I think that's why our relationship has, although it's had some bumps, I've only threatened to burn the building down twice, uh, it's had its bumps along the way. I think it it survived because that – because – we also realize that culture is going to be a fit. And even as one person who's a loudmouth going into a 160 person firm can be just as disruptive to culture if you don't play it correctly Absolutely. as a large acquisition. Yeah. If you think about it, you really are the closer you can get to authenticity or in transparency is the sooner you can get to a win-win. They, they don't want to buy trouble and you don't want to inherit trouble. Yeah. And the best thing you can do is lay it out there and just be clear on what, you know, life forward is going to be like. And you don't, and you don't want to walk into trouble either. No, exactly. <laughs> the other thing, and I did mention this that you should look for, and that is turnover. Just go back through the last five years and yep. see how much turnover did the firm, you know, actually have. And you're an industry that has some turnover. It really does uh, in large part because the way these businesses have been built, Uh, They tend to be very siloed. Everything's concentrated at the top, and you have all these young advisors coming up through the ranks who are looking for opportunity. If you don't bring that to them, which includes ownership, something we solved at Brightworth a long time ago, they get frustrated and leave. And we are in a talent race in our business. Yeah. So um, you're the chief executive officer, but I don't think you're a dictator. You didn't come in wearing a sash or a big hat and frilly shoulder pads or anything like that. So how did you get your other partners on board? How involved were they? And how did you, how did you manage the, I don't want to say politics, that's not the right word, but how did you manage the relationship and communication so that they would be inclined to, to be a constructive force in the transaction? Sure, great question. And there's sort of several parts to this one too. Uh, there's the management committee and the partners, and then there's the entire Brightworth team sitting in, in Atlanta, right? So one of the things we already had was what were what were our critical success factors in our mergers and acquisition strategy that we were looking for? Check the boxes, strategic location, you know, um, strategic talent, um, a, a focused, you know, in a niche market, check, 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 all right? So all of the basic things were covered. Um the other, the other part to this is that you have to realize that, and, and there's sort of a, I call there's two kinds of people, you know, how there's, 
in, at Brightworth, I saw two kinds of people. There's always the wow group, which is, wow, this could be amazing and great. They see the check marks next to the, the critical success factors. And then there's the other group, which is, how in the world are we going to pull this off, right? And you really have to take your time with the hows because they're going to have a billion questions sitting, you know, in their head about how's that going to work from a compliance standpoint? How's that going to work from an investment standpoint? How are we going to integrate all this? You know, there's all these millions of questions and you've got to, you know, and I'm an influencer, you know, I have a very positive person. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, I have to be patient. You've got to bring them along. You got to give them the time to process these things. And partly you've also got to say, you know, we got to have a little bit of faith here. Had a great question at a staff meeting when I announced that we were pursuing this large acquisition. A gentleman in the group, he was one of our planners, said, what makes us think we can pull this off? Like, what makes you think we can actually do this? And the fact of the matter is, I didn't know we could do this, right? I can't prove to them that we can do this. But I look around the room and I said, look, we're one of the few firms who've invested a lot in our next generation leaders. They've done an amazing job over the last 10 years of moving from where they were to where we are now. We're at the right place in our maturing as a company to go find out. You know, I, I don't know if we're riding a five-speed bike, a 10-speed bike, or an 18-speed bike, but the only way we're going to find out is to attack the hill, you know, and let's go see. And that really won a lot of people over. Interesting that you bring up, and not just bring up, but that you involved – your employees. I think that's an unusual step to take. I think most, when most executives pursue a material transaction, buy or sell side, they try to keep that a very closed discussion with a very tight inner circle. Uh, and I, I think, I think primarily because they're afraid of causing fear and uncertainty. Sure. Right. Um, Although I, th I think that tends to backfire. We, we're kind of seeing now with the coronavirus thing, the more that you try to cover up, all that does, it makes people's imaginations become more active. Yep. Right. So it hurts in the long run. But, but, but also, but also what, what, what you did is that you made yourself subject to scrutiny. You will, you put yourself in a position, a public forum, or one of your planners said, what, what basically, what makes you so great? Right? Who do you think you are that you we can pull off this really successful thing, and put you and gave you the opportunity, put you in the position of being vulnerable and saying, "Well, I don't know, but here's what my faith is based on." Yeah, exactly. Uh, but not all leaders, you know, appreciate being questioned, right, by the quote unquote rank and file of the organization. Sure. Just from a, a personal philosophical standpoint, I have found that the benefits of having the open conversation and the challenge way outweigh the, uh, the other way, which is don't tell them anything. And we actually used to have that culture of telling the people very little. Yep. I want to have the questions in advance, you know, on a, on a card. Yeah. And, uh, that's just not my style. Well, and I, you know, I, and I think you get buy-in, you know, we, we just recorded a podcast with another individual talking about, CPA firm relationships. And what he said was that the most disruptive thing to a CPA relationship is a surprise, right? And a material exactly. surprise. Very few things are more surprising than an email at 8.30 in the morning on a Monday saying, hey, we just acquired a firm equal our size in Charlotte. 
right? More to come. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. Is, is that really helping you retain people no. and be, and be, have people be more comfortable with the transaction than if you've kind of at least fed some information along the line? Exactly. Exactly. Um, so you made this acquisition in 17, you've had a few years to step back. How has it changed your firm? Okay. It, we have not stepped back. That's the funny part. Okay. Uh, you know, all the work starts, right? You get that yep. signature, you cut a check and now you've got a lot of work to do. Yep. Um, and you know, we went from, like I said, what, you know, effectively, uh, what were we, we were about 25 people. They were 16. Uh, we're now 80 people. Um, it was, you know, it was a, a big giant step for our firm. So we had an awful lot of infrastructure we needed to build out while we were integrating. So at the time that we did the acquisition, I was effectively CEO, CFO, and COO. Well, that couldn't last very long. So we've, over the last two years, we've spent time building out the infrastructure. We now have a chief operating officer, a chief financial officer, people officer, um, trying to think of what else, but you know, we've built in the matrix management between the two offices, um, so that it's really clear where all the planners actually report to. And, um, it's taken an awful lot of time and effort. Uh, we've answered all the questions that I tried to push off until the other side of the, you know, um, the transaction. And that's worked out really well. We followed through with our promise, which was, we told them, look, we're, we realized you're the same size as us pretty much. We had more infrastructure built out than they did, but we told them we will figure this out together. Now I'm sure that was, that was a, a Jimmy Carter, please trust me kind of a comment, but we followed through. We said, look, okay, let's go sit down. Let's start talking about CRM. Let's talk about our trading software. Let's talk about where trading should take place. And we've worked through all those things together. Now that's going to be a lot harder on the next one. Um, cause we've made a lot of decisions about how we're going to organize ourselves, et cetera. So the next one won't be as, um, what's the word, uh, together, if I may, it's going right. to be, won't a little, be quite as, co- co- quite as collaborative. Thank you. <laughs> won't be quite as collaborative. It'll be a little more of, uh, it's gotta be more our way than, than the highway or whatever, but, uh, we'll, we'll still take the best. Like if, if they, if we find another firm that's of substantial size yep. and they're doing something we really like, I think the pain of change now is going to be way better, um, than just trying to force people into a system that's not as good. So we'll, we'll make changes. It just won't be as many changes as we've done this time. So you sound like you're happy with the results of the acquisition. Yeah. Great team. I love our partners. Um, I can't tell you how many times they've come up to me and said, man, we are so glad that we're part of Brightworth now. And, uh, from that standpoint, people standpoint, I could not ask for a, a better decision. Um, their, their firm, if I may, their part has grown, um, you know, by leaps and bounds. And, uh, so everything's, you know, working out it, but it's, you know, again, really hard work. Um, there are periods of time where they probably feel like, uh, we're starting to feel like the stepchild and, you know, means I'm not spending enough time up there or we're not putting the right resources there. We're working through how to, how to do all of that. Um, our decision-making around hiring, for example, is a little bit more driven around real calculations of what capacity is across the organization. 
you know, theirs was a little more by the, I don't use the word seat of the pants, but you know, Hey, we're feeling really busy. I think we need to hire somebody. So yep. we're bringing structure around all of that. They're not used to that. Yep. Um, and we're learning a lot of things from them. So it's been, it's been a lot of a, I would say really a win-win from that. Standpoint. Are you finding that your, your offices still have slightly different cultures and maybe that's a good thing? Sure. And part of that is their service models a little different. It needs to be. Um, we are, you know, we're very obviously Atlanta centric. Uh, we obviously have clients all over the country. Those larger clients we go fly to, um, and in Atlanta clients, they just kind of drive to the office. Well, in their space, the dentists are all over the country. They actually have the dentists fly into Charlotte. So the dentist will come in, come mm-hmm. to the building. They'll spend, it's almost like a Mayo clinic structure. They'll meet with the attorney. They meet with the transitions person, the TPA, the CPA, and they meet with us. So um, there, there are some cultural differences, but we really are merging, you know, merging the cultures, and that's working really well. We have very defined sort of uh, terms and accountability around our culture. So there are a lot of things and behaviors we don't tolerate, and we make sure we jump on those. So we're seeing it really come together. You know, interestingly, I, I don't know if this is either here or there, but I feel compelled to, I feel compelled to add, and microphones turned on, so I'm just going to say it, but. You know, we, we were the result of the acquisition of Brady Ware of several firms, including two in the Atlanta area that became the Atlanta office. And, you know, our Atlanta office does have a different culture, I think, than the rest of the firm. And, and I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing for me because I do believe that our our office is a little bit more entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. We, we do feel like we're kind of the, the rebels a little bit. And we're not afraid to kind of do skunk works kind of stuff and put things in, in, in place that, you know, we know aren't going to hurt the rest of the firm, but we just don't feel like we got to wait for everybody to catch up to realize how brilliant we are and that we're right. <laughs> right. And so we'll just, and we think that if we set a good enough example, the rest of the firm will come along. Sure. You know, personally, I don't, you know, our headquarters are in Dayton, Ohio. I don't know that I would thrive in our headquarter office because it is the central office. It is the core of the firm. It is, you know, they are accountants, right? There's nothing wrong with accountants. I work for an accounting firm, but, but, but it's much more of a by the numbers kind of place. Sure. And so having, personally speaking, having another location, the firm that can, is willing to be a little bit, a little bit different where I can be a better fit for me has been a huge benefit. And I actually think it benefits our firm. Sure. And I think that's a really good thing. And I would think every, every organization, and this is, this is even true around operational issues, which is, you know, what are things that have to be absolute and what are the things where we have some flexibility around? Right. And, um, and part of that is also culture and how people operate, but there are also some boundaries where things are just plain, not acceptable. Yeah. And we think those boundaries are really also important to enforce and make sure that, you know, there are no exceptions, particularly at the partner level. If we let the partners live in the, the exception area, the staff will never follow. Yep. So they have to see that you know, at the partner level. And we've actually had issues around that, and we've dealt with them. And that really um, you know, speaks volumes to the team. So um, you've been through a couple of these. And thank you again so much for spending all this time with us and sharing your, your experience Someone listening is thinking about buying a company. Mm-hmm. If we can distill down to a couple of pieces of advice, a couple of bullet points, can, can you do that? Or are there a couple of pieces of advice you'd just give blanket, thinking about buying a business? What do you need to think about? A um, couple of things. One, 
One is, I mean, we talked about it. It's the death march. So it's almost like preparing for a marathon. You have to mentally say, okay, I may get this done in six months, but it also may take a really long time and just prepare yourself, which also means going to neglect. So you have to be prepared. Also know your team. Who are you going to draw into the process and when and sort of understand how they're built, right? Are they a, a, a wow type of a person or are they going to be a how type of a person knowing that it's good to have those people who are always asking how, because they're the ones who are going to help you with the due diligence and really ask a lot of good questions. So know your team, expect a long March. One of the things that I really uh, was hard for me was realizing that everything matters to somebody. Hmm. And I have to realize that even though it may not matter to me, like, yeah, that's just not an important deal point. Why are we bothering with that? It matters to somebody in the firm. So you have to take the time to address it and address it well. So in a sense, details matter. Everything matters. Know your boundaries. Um, I, I were a couple of times where I got hooked on some, you know, some policy that they had that they wanted to keep. And uh, it was an absolute no for Brightworth. But, you know, when I really looked at it, it was just not a big deal. And I let it bother me. And I was literally ready to just say the heck with it and walk away when, you know, the PE firm or our attorney would step in and go, Ray, it's just not that big a deal. It's just small potatoes. You know, we're talking billions of dollars of assets to manage. Who cares whether you're going to charge your parents or not for their, you know, for the services you're doing, that kind of stuff. You want to charge $5 million fine for a 50 cent crime. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then, you know, the other thing is when you're doing the LOI, um, this was, a, 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 again, it was my first time. There's just an awful lot of cascading consequences of anything that's in there. And you need to think ahead. Like what are the cascading consequences of putting this specific thing in your LOI? Um, I found myself having to cover a lot of areas that I didn't think about because, you know, you're sort of sold that the LOI is just this general, general, you know, document. You don't want to put too much detail in it, but sometimes you do. You really want to think ahead. Those are my suggestions. I'm going to use that quote. I may even make it my quote of the day that I do on LinkedIn. Everything matters to somebody that really that is, that is profound and insightful. Thank you. At least to me, it is. I think to other people it will be as well. Um, if somebody wants to ask a question about how to buy a business owner who's been through the wars before, can they contact you? Absolutely. How do they do that? Well, um, there's always the website. My, uh, my email address is ray.padrone at brightworth.com. And you can always call our phone number, which is 404-760-9000. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Ray Padrone so much for share, for joining us and sharing his expertise with us today. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and I've just touched my face three more times, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.